0: To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com/forthewild or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit forthewild.world/donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Karina Gould, who is the spokesperson for the Confederated Villages of Lishan and Alony. She was born and raised in Oakland, California, the territory of the Huchin, and is an activist that has worked on preserving and protecting the ancient burial sites of her ancestors in the Bay Area for decades.
1: Because there's many people that can't go back home, but it's then our responsibility to learn what is your responsibility then on someone else's homeland.
0: Karina is the co-founder and a lead organizer for Indian People Organizing for Change, a small native-run grassroots organization, and co-founder of the Segorite Land Trust, an urban indigenous women's community organization working to return land to indigenous stewardship in San Francisco's East Bay. Well, Karina, thank you so much for being with us. We are so honored to have you on the show today, so welcome.
1: Thank you so much, Ayana. I'm so happy to be here with you today.
0: Well, I read your bio, but before we begin, I'd like to ask if you'd like to introduce yourself further.
1: Uh, it's uh, wonderful to be with you today, relatives. I'm happy to be here in my uh, ancestral territory. I'm also a, a mom and a grandma, and so my children and my grandchildren also reside in our traditional territory, and I'm just happy to be able to uh, welcome folks from all over the place that's going to be listening in today. And it's great to have this conversation with you today.
0: Thank you, Karina. Well, there are so many threads of your work that I'm yearning to delve deeply into. But to begin, I'd like to honor Ohlone territory as a place of tremendous abundance. Prior to development and resource extraction, Ohlone territory was filled with oak savannas, ancient bison, fertile salmon runs, and roaming grasslands. And I'd love if you could share with us the historical ecology of this territory, and how that memory shapes what Segorite envisions for Ohlone land and Indigenous stewardship.
1: Well, thank you so much. You know, I, I grew up here in an urban setting in my traditional territory, and I look at the land, I think, in a different way. And I think that I really started looking at the land in a different way when we started doing the walks to the shell mounds in the Bay Area. And most folks don't even know what shell mounds are, or I think that we have done a great job in the last 20 years explaining that to Mm -hmm. people, that these uh, historic monuments of our ancestors, these burial sites and village sites that were along the coast um, where freshwater met saltwater. And to imagine the Bay Area in a different kind of way. You know, thousands of people from all different walks of life come to the Bay Area, different languages, different cultures, and which makes the Bay Area a really vibrant place in terms of cultures right now. But underneath all of those cultures and the buildings lie the ancestral remains of my ancestors. Because of development, most of them have been destroyed. And when you look at the Bay Area, I love the way you talked about the abundance and I was in a in a conversation with a nephew a few years back, and he talked about how the songs of our ancestors were always these songs of abundance, different from different uh, from other tribes it that come from different places, um, maybe people that had harsher winters that were their songs. Some of their songs may be about, uh, please help us through this harsh time in the Bay Area. If we imagine um, that this place has only been touched over the last 250 years, so it's really a small time in history that uh, that we see anything in the Bay Area. These buildings have been here for a very short time, other people being on these lands for a very short time. And so if we can imagine the different waterways in the Bay Area, probably, you know, anywhere between 30 and 50 different streams and creeks that used to run through here, fresh water uh, was abundant. So I like to think if we can imagine the Bay Area in a different way. Today, we see hundreds of thousands of people here and we see thousands of people without homes and we see hunger. And 250 years ago, it was not even a concept hunger, or people without a home. And there there was enough fresh water here. So every creek in the Bay Area you could drink out of. And so I can imagine that my ancestors lived in this paradise, you know, not that long ago. But I also imagine that today, as we're looking at climate justice, and climate catastrophe happening, that it would not take that much for us to reverse this There was acorns here that were in abundance, but also seeds and the vast amount of uh, plains that were filled with grasses and wildflowers that we would use the seeds to eat uh, a lot of. Um, And so there was just so much that was here in the Bay Area and the landscape has changed um, in a short period of time. But I imagine that if we went back to a way of living closer to the land, That the land can still hold us and sustain us in a way that we would not see homelessness. We would not see hunger in the Bay Area. Um, But I think that human beings have gotten away from having a connection to the land. And that's really why we're in the place that we're in today.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I love to imagine through you what the place of your ancestors was and that it's still there. It's still underneath the buildings, like you were saying, and yeah, it's a really beautiful vision to think that it could come back, and I believe that as well. Well now, the Segorite Land Trust is the first urban indigenous-led land trust in the country, And I'd really like to focus on indigenous land reclamation in urbanized areas like the Bay Area, where for the past two centuries, the land has been developed beyond ancestral recognition. And this development is expected to continue amidst ongoing speculative investing and as people continue to migrate into the Bay Area. So can you talk about land reclamation in context to living in a city and the power this reclamation holds for tribes like your own who are simultaneously on ancestral and urbanized territory? How are cultural lifeways still ever-present amongst the cityscape?
1: That's a great question. Um, And I like that, the word of reclamation. And we use the word rematriation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I really love that uh, because we're not... Only the first urban indigenous land trust We're the first indigenous women-led land trust. And I think it's important that it's uh, it's women that are leading the forefront of bringing back our historical, um, our lands back to a a way of being. I I think it is really important that we talk about what does rematriation mean, because it really is a part of where we're trying to use, uh, trying to go with the Segorite Land Trust. And the Seguritay Land Trust was really created because we're a non-federally recognized tribe. And we had been doing work in the Bay Area for years about bringing our ancestral remains out of the universities and institutions and putting them back into the land. But as non-federally recognized tribe, we have no land base But it's important for us to also talk about that this is an intertribal women-led land trust. And the reason is because of the policies of the United States government of forced relocation into cities that we decided that we're working with women that have been here for three and four generations now that have been moved into urban settings and needed places where they are able to have ceremony able to be in touch with the land and grow traditional foods and to have medicines available Uh, grandchildren that have not ever been back home to their own territories and what does it mean for us as the indigenous people of this land to take care of the guests in our territory but rematriation is really about maintaining and passing on to every new generation the languages ceremonies customs and laws of our people And maintaining the sacred ties to our ancestral lands and keeping with the original instructions given to us by the creator. And so because of colonization and the way that it happened here in uh, California is different than in any place else in the country because of the genocidal policies that happen with the Catholic church and the chattel slavery that happened um, within those missions. And then when the new Mexican government happened, our tribe, tribal people were also uh, enslaved by them and then by the United States government. So when we look at that whole thing and the disruption of family ties uh, with each other and the loss of land and the loss of our ceremonial ways, it really is Segura job and work to rematriate the way I talked about it, is to bring back those ceremonial songs, the languages, this, uh, the ceremonial places. And we've been blessed to receive the first quarter acre of our territory back to us uh, a few years ago and working with people that are now in our lands. And the reason is so interesting that this is all tied to other indigenous places. The reason that land came back to us Uh, besides doing the hard work of doing the education, was that people began to hear that there is something that's more meaningful um, when people are doing work. People were moved by the work of our relatives at Standing Rock. And people from all over the world went to Standing Rock and helped to stand for the water. And when folks from the Bay Area did that, these young people that run Planting Justice had two acres of land on our territory and they were running an organic uh, nursery there. And they, but what they did was they were so moved by the, the work that was happening at Standing Rock, they actually went to the elders there and asked what they should do when they came home. And the elders told them that they should work with the First Nation peoples on whose land they're on. And they really took it to heart. And they set up a meeting with Janela LaRose and myself, and Janela's is uh, the co-founder of both Indian People Organizing for Change and the Seguritay Land Trust, and we've been doing work together for over two decades. They offered us this quarter acre of land on the two-acre piece of property they were using to give it back to us, to create a cultural easement so that we could have land back. And the way these ancestors are, are amazed me because this piece of land sits along the LaShawn Creek where our tribe is named for and uh, it's a half mile walk from my own home and in the idea of rematriation of bringing back our traditional ways of really thinking about what do we leave for the next 7 generations or for our even for our grandchildren uh, this gift of creating an arbor on our territory that had not been here for over two hundred years was created um, not just by the indigenous people but people from all walks of life were able to come to the front to the um, to the land when we had brought the redwood trees there and helped us to take the bark off the redwoods, to sand them down, to ready them to be stood up, to create an arbor, a place where we have ceremony, a place where California native people dance together, that we have uh, are able to welcome people onto our lands. This place was, uh, was created here on our territory so that it would be a center of bringing people to that fire again, to not just remember as indigenous people, uh, the connection to our land, But for all people that are now living on our territory, what does it mean to be a guest on indigenous people's land? What does it mean for us to have a reciprocity with the land again? How do we be good guests and good hosts while we're taking care of this land? And what does that mean together to dream of being on this territory?
0: Hmm. It seems like even more recently over this spring and summer, We've seen a tremendous amount of movement that is causing settlers to begin examining their relationship to place. And I'm thinking specifically mm. about the mass removal of statues depicting incredibly genocidal and oppressive figures. But I've also seen how this momentum has been really challenging for others because of the dominant telling of history. And it's led me to think about our attachment to histories that diminish settler shame And how as long as we remain attached, collective ignorance will grow. So I'd like to ask you about how reconnecting with the land through Indigenous-led stewardship requires all of us to talk about the distortion of land. How is it necessary that in order to meaningfully participate in land restoration, we need to congruently relearn history?
1: Mm -hmm. That's a great question. You know, a couple of weeks ago, the statue of Junipero Serra was taken down mm-hmm. in Golden Gate Park. And in 2015, we uh, led a movement around No Sainthood for Sarah," And the Catholic Church uh, decided to make this horrific genocidal maniac a a saint. And, you know, we liken him to Hitler, you know. Um, because of the genocide that happened, because he brought the Catholic Church and his ideologies from Europe to our territories, and there was the beginning of the uh end of our ceremonies and our sacred places and our languages and songs and so for many California Native people, it was a very a big time of mourning when this happened. And the crazy thing that we really learned while we were doing this, and this this took place all over the country around Junipero Serra becoming a saint within the Catholic Church. It really began the conversations of what what does it mean to have this sainthood, but also what does it mean to really look back in history and find out how did this all begin? And I think that within the in the United States, at least, we do a very poor job at telling the history of from the uh, indigenous people's point of view. Um, And it does a really good job of what I call paper genocide of our people. Our people are talked about in fourth grade about how we used to live. And never talk about the current situation. So it's always about an Indian in the past, almost this romantic idea mm-hmm. of indigeneity a long time ago and of a primitive people, but never talked about in a present form. And so it's what I call, again, paper genocide We're we're talk, thought about as we're extinct. Mm -hmm. Even within the city of Oakland now where I live or Huchin, which covers six Bay Area cities, many people don't uh, know that Ohlone people exist. It's really been the last 25 years of us really pushing the envelope, standing up for sacred sites to talk about the connection of land uh, and people and human beings. But it also had started this conversation about the doctrine of discovery. And the Doctrine of Discovery was what allowed European countries to not only settle on indigenous lands and to to try to take those over, but it also created this way for people to create slavery. And so there's the connection between African people coming to indigenous lands and indigenous people also being slaughtered um, and being enslaved in our territories. The doctrine of discovery basically says that we as people, brown and dark people, were only only had half souls. And because we only had half souls, it was was okay to take the land uh, either by conversion or by sword. And so that doctrine of discovery allowed for the colonization of the world, really, and enslavement of African people. Um, and so those conversations begin to happen in earnest. Uh, during 2015, at least in my lifetime, I remember that being a pivotal point of talking about that. Even us going to Catholic churches and talking. Uh, to nuns that were setting up these talks, these dialogues about Junipero Sarah, um, having conversations in community settings. There were many people that were upset to hear the truth of history. But we did decide at that point, those that were organizing around this No Sainthood for Sarah, that we would always speak the truth to history. And um, even though people get upset, I think that that's the problem is that we get these ideas that grew up in the Bay Area or in California, at least the history here. um, And most fourth graders are grew up making sugar cube missions and talking about what wonderful things that the Spanish church brought to the native people here Um, And not really examining the destruction that happened not only to the people, but to the lands Mm -hmm. by the animals that they brought here, by uh, moving the waterways, by covering Mm -hmm. them up, by, um, you know, all of the different things that happened on the lands um, are not talked about in our history books Today, as we're looking at Black Lives Matter movement right now, we're at this pivotal point in history where we need to begin to really speak the truth about what happened on these lands and to further examine how it is that this country that was built on the stolen lands of people and the stolen bodies of others um, uh, needs to come correct in a way, needs to really talk about the histories. What I find when I talk about these histories with young people is that I'm talking about fourth and fifth graders. They understand that uh, slavery is not a good thing and they understand justice in that kind of way. They're at that point in uh, their development, their mental development about right and wrong justices. It's the adults that get uncomfortable when we talk about it. Uh, the adults that want to hold on to this idea of romanticism, of the Spanish bringing all of these great things to the indigenous people to my, you know, to my ancestors and not talk about the horrific things that that happened as a result of them coming to the lands and taking them. You know, what we talk about when we're talking about stolen lands from people, we're not talking about a past. We're talking about currently stolen lands, that their lands are continuously being stolen from indigenous people. While we were in sit and place, the Wampanoag people had their territory taken from them by, uh, you know, by this country. Um, we talk about um, not that long ago, uh, Ruth Ginsburg uh, wrote um, a document disallowing Native people from receiving a lake and some land back because, using the doctrine of discovery. We talk about uh, us continuously when we were in 2011 in Vallejo, uh, California, what, we, what is our village site of Sagorite, when we went and took that space over for 109 days, that land that was a ceremonial place, it was a village site, it was a burial site, and still the land being taken and not uh, disallowing us from having ceremonies there or disallowing us from uh, being on our own territories without uh, having permits from park districts and uh, disallowing us from ha- uh, having our ability to gather uh, foods in our territorial places. So the taking of land is not something that's in the past. It continues to happen today. The reason that it's important also for us to start having these conversations about the truth and history, what happened is that we cannot write what has been wrong. We cannot, uh, you know, if we do not examine how things have happened here, we could just go back a few, uh, not that long ago and look at what Germany has done. And mm-hmm. Germany ha- has taken a responsibility to the genocide of, of Jewish people. Uh, By telling the truth to that history, the horrific truth of what happened in those gas chambers, the horrific truth of what happened um, during that era of Nazism that was happening then, not that the Nazism has gone away, but to to also to acknowledge that this horrific genocide happened. We don't talk about the genocide of Indian people in this country. We don't talk about the genocide of African people and the taking of their language and their traditional belief systems and uh, bringing them to a land that uh, that they didn't know and making them uh, having them um, be enslaved. And so we don't talk about those things uh, because people, I think, are afraid to touch the pain. And mm-hmm. I think that what's today is asking us to do is to touch that pain, to open it wide And then from there, we have to heal. We have to bring it back to the rematriation of land. It's important that indigenous people have land, have access to their land, to be given back the land that was stolen from them, to acknowledge that this land, this new country, it's a very young country, has done horrific things Mm -hmm. and they owe Uh, both indigenous people and African-American people, uh, a huge debt. And so unless we begin to talk about those, uh, have those conversations about it, unless we're very honest about it, um, we're not going to move forward.
0: was an eagle Many of our listeners will really resonate with your approach to settler responsibility and reciprocity in that even for those of us who already care deeply about the land, we still also have a responsibility to the ancestors who tended the land and present day descendants. So with this preface, I'd like to talk about the growing number of organizations and offerings that encourage settlers and occupants to pay a land tax, like real mm. rent, Duwamish, and of course, Segorite's Shumi land tax. What does the Shumi land tax do and why is it important to frame it as a tax or rent rather than a donation?
1: that's a great question. Uh, I want to say that we first started out to Shiumi tax and, um, in about 2016, I believe. And we got this idea from the YDOT uh, people who are, are in Northern California and um, they had received an Island back um, and needed and didn't have any way to restore it back to its healthy self. And they needed to clean it up um, and so they started this tax idea. We asked permission if we could use it here in the Bay Area. And I actually worked with allies and accomplices to put this together. It was something that um, was brought to us and said, maybe we should try this out here in the Bay Area. And so um, we did. There was an ally who now works for me, um, or actually he should be he's probably an accomplice, uh, Ariel Lucky and his dad created the platform on our website that we um, actually just put out um, one, one year, a few years ago, and I think it was 2016, um, just by word of mouth that we were going to open this up as Shu'umi tax. And Shu'umi in the Chochenyo language from our territory means a gift. Uh, and we couldn't figure out if we, we didn't really like the word tax. Um, And we were trying to figure out a different word to use and we still have not come up with one um, because taxing, you know, has this negative connotation Mm -hmm. and people hate the word tax and what that means. Um, But it's kind of stuck for for whatever reason that people understand that there's an obligation when we hear the word tax There's an obligation. Right. Um, and so we ask people to, if they live or work or benefit from living or on our territory, that, that they do this honorary tax and the tax really what it does helps to pay for the work that we're doing to rematriate land in our territory, to build the cent, the central uh, ceremonial places to help us to create these, um, uh, people are now calling resiliency hubs are these places, what we, we call Hemetka, a place where we all gather uh, a place where uh, when things are not so good, either man-made or um, natural disasters, that we have places where we could uh, help the communities that are around us to making sure that they have uh, necessary first aid and, um, and water and, and things available to them. And so, Another way of taking care of our communities is by creating these places.
0: Yeah, there's so much there. And I really resonate with this idea of the Shaumi land tax and the obligation of those who are living and profiting off living off these lands to be responsible, to take care of the land and the First Nations folks who are also taking care of it still today. So I, I really appreciate all the labor that you and others have put into this. And
1: I think that what's wonderful about the attacks, either Duwamish rent, and there's a real Manhattan that's doing in New York. We just had a conversation with another tribe uh, in Washington, D.C. yesterday. And we're hoping that people pick this up in all the different uh, tribal areas that people have a responsibility. But sometimes our our uh, folks that live in our territories don't know how to engage. You know, Mm -hmm. how do how do I you know, I know that that. There, I should be doing something, but I don't know what I can do. Um, This actually gives folks a real concrete way of actually giving back and helping the traditional people of that territory do the work that they need to do um, in order to bring back the language songs and ceremonies, but to take care of our relatives when they come from out of the area. And not just the Ohlone people. I always say this because we have a responsibility for everybody that now lives in our territory. How do we then do that? In a traditional way, everyone that lived in the territory would give something so that we're all taken care of. And so this is a way of traditionally doing this as well. It's a, a traditional thought process. It's like we are all trying to live in a reciprocal manner. And so our job is to take care of folks here How do we do that as good hosts if we don't have good guests also participating in the reciprocal relationship? And so um, uh, I think that that's what Shoumi does. It helps us to have a reciprocal relationship on this territory, not to um, close an eye, a blind eye to Indigenous people still being here. Mm -hmm. But how do we live as good guests and come in a good way?
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to now ask about using private land trust as a tool for Indigenous sovereignty and how they're an example of conservation existing outside of the industrial or traditional environmentalist framework, as paradoxical as that might sound. So how do Indigenous land trust subvert or repurpose the very colonial history of land conservation? And additionally, why are they especially important for non-federally recognized tribes?
1: Yeah. Okay. So really the only way for us to get land in um, back in our territory was to create a land trust. And really we didn't know what a land trust was when we first started out. It wasn't in our purview for uh, a lot of different reasons. Indigenous people don't generally Um, Think of land trust, I think, you know, land for federally recognized tribe is put into trust by the United States government. So that's what reservations are. The land is put in trust so that they that the reservations can exist for non federally recognized tribes. And really, I think that people should know that missionized Indians in California from the bottom from San Diego all the way up to Sonoma um, are not federally recognized along the coast of California and so that means multiple tribes are landless indians you're landless even in your own territory and so the land trust um it was a beautiful thing that it was a it was a gift i think my ancestors are so amazing that they give us these gifts of meeting people and putting us in contact with those that have uh, that are supposed to bring us these ideas or Or knowledges that we didn't have before. And Beth Rose Middleton, who is a professor at UC Davis, uh, became a good friend and ally of ours. And she wrote her dissertation at UC Berkeley called Trust in the Land. And it was about Native Land Trust. And Native Land Trust had just begun not that long before we started doing, uh, before we did the takeover in 2011. And it was really about bringing land back in different kinds of ways. We had federally recognized tribes that were buying back land They had casinos that were buying back their sacred sites mm. uh, so that they could have uh, they could have access to them again um, and that they could uh, take care of that land in different kinds of ways. We had non federally recognized tribes that were um, only had an acre of their land. Uh, that they had a long term lease on so that they could do ceremony and they could do education on it. And so really, it was because I was brought to a meeting after that, uh, after the occupation in 2011. Uh, Beth Rose invited me to a meeting of Indigenous land trusts that I found out about them. Um, And they were mostly, um, mostly guys, Indigenous men that were uh, at the meeting. And uh, I was like the, you know, one of the only women that were there. And that's when I met my friend, our friend, June, uh, Lankard. Um, and it was at that meeting back in 2011. And, uh, and I asked him a question, you know, he, he and I, um, hit it off. He told me about his story of, uh, saving, uh, the land, for, uh, after the Exxon Valdez spill. And, Uh, As we were having lunch, I just asked him, I was like, I noticed that there's a lot of men here. Hmm. Is this a boys club? That's what I asked him. (laughs) And he laughed and he, you know, and he said, yeah, it really is, you know, not only uh, here in indigenous land trusts, but also other land trusts, you know, there's thousands of land trusts uh, across the country. People are trying to preserve land for uh, animals or, or uh, landscapes or different kinds of things. And, and what I really found out about other land trusts, uh, non-Indigenous land trusts, is that for a lot of them, they're about putting up these big old fences with no trespassing sign to save a particular area from being touched or, or destroyed. Um, But Indigenous land trusts are really about reengaging people back into the land, really touching the land and really uh, working with the land and bringing medicines and ceremony and stuff back and really trying to uh, not only Indigenous people, but really bringing everybody along with us. And what does that look like for us to reengage with the land in a different kind of a way? And so I really appreciate this being a tool a mechanism for us to be able to do that, um, especially for us that are non-federally recognized, that, um, that want to have access to land for ceremony, for reburial, for uh, a way for us to grow our traditional foods again, for us to have places for us to just be. Um, and I think that that's different than a park. You know, uh, it's really talking about what does it look like to be on sovereign indigenous land in the middle of a city? and it what it really means is that indigenous people are leading what's happening on that land are leading the ceremonial places are uh, really re-engaging and our our tribal territory our tribal people back into a way of of living in a more reciprocal manner um, really bringing people onto the land to learn about language and i think that people are are hungry for it not just our people other people that are living in our territories now that they understand this relationship that they're wanting to engage in a different kind of way. I think when we live in cities and urban places, um, we forget that we are still a part of the, the circle of creation. Mm-hmm. That we are always trying to run away to the mountains or run away to the ocean, to run away to, the, to nature. We forget that we are part of nature. That we are supposed to be in that circle as well. Human beings having land in these places, indigenous people taking land through these uh, these uh, tools of uh, land trust right now allows us to engage again. Allows other people to engage in this idea that we are still a part of this circle of creation. How do we get get ourselves back into balance again, so that we don't feel as we are a part of a, a part, but part of. And so um, I think that that's what's important about having urban Indigenous land trust, um, is that we don't have to feel like we have to go outside somewhere to we can remember that we are still a part of something.
0: Well, talking about land trust, I'm thinking about how there is also a conversation to be had on trust, or perhaps mistrust. And the harsh reality that so many settler environmentalists don't trust indigenous people to hold full title to land. They would much Mm -hmm. rather see land preserved in the hands of large scale nonprofits. So I'm curious to hear how you have navigated this environment as well as the logistics of indigenous land trust. How do you see checks Mm. and balances operating and how can we foster integrity in conservation and land restoration work amidst a world that continues to peddle scarcity, greed, and extraction?
1: That's a great question about uh, about the mistrust of Indigenous people of their own lands. Mm-hmm. It's this paternalistic ideology that settler colonialism has brought that we uh, don't know how to take care of our own territories. Yeah, Not looking back 15,000 plus years of Indigenous people taking care of their territories um, and having an abundance uh, before anybody else got here. (laughs) You know, I think it's a, it's a huge ego uh, trip, you know, Mm -hmm. as well um, to think that they know what's best for us still. Uh, It it really does come down to this paternalistic idea of us um, as being inferior. And so I think using the land trust as a tool to get it into our own hands is, is great. And then I think it's this settler colonial ideology that buying and selling land is the right thing to do. Um, You know, when there was definitely no idea on our territory and in or Indigenous territory across Turtle Island about the buying and selling and piecemealing and extraction of of our native territories, and that's a that's a very uh, new idea that came to our lands. And really in California, only a very new idea that only came a couple of hundred years ago. And so I think it's uh, possible for us, you know, when we talked earlier in the conversation about about truth-telling, I think it's important for us to sit down with these, our friends that want to be friends of the earth, to also understand that they need to be friends of the indigenous people. Many times throughout recent history, we've seen Sierra Club and other large organizations that have not been so willing to uh, have indigenous people talking about the importance of land and really stepping forward to, to be those people that speak on behalf of our traditional territories. And I think it's important that we begin to listen. You know, we talked about this movement right now with the solar colonial uh, statues going down. And we talk about we talked about the importance of telling truth to history right now. I think it's important right now also, as we're going, we're moving as a as a human race towards this catastrophe of climate blowing up right now. That we need to be able to listen to the indigenous people of this land because there are uh, original hidden instructions on how we are supposed to be. And in order for us to bring, bring that into balance, we need to listen to indi- uh, indigenous leadership around what those stories were. For thousands of years, we as Indigenous people knew how to live on this land. And so how is that not important to listen to right now as we're moving forward in this place where um, these catastrophes are happening all over the world? Uh, And one of the catastrophes is COVID. You know, we we need to listen to this. The, what COVID is telling us right now, the horrific disease that's happening to us. And but while we've been sitting in place, you know, I kind of feel like Mother Earth kind of put us in a sit time as human beings to kind of learn something, to look at what happened while we were sitting for a very short amount of time was that the air cleared up, that the waters started to become restored, that the animals that originally lived in in, in places where cities now are came back. And so it's important for us to look at uh, what's happening in the environment and how we have had a huge impact on that um as human beings
0: So I'm hoping we could now talk about the gendering of land conservation and the necessity of having indigenous women and gender non-conforming folks lead land restoration efforts. Historically, I think many of us know what has happened when patriarchal heteronormative men hold land, but perhaps you can share with us how the land is calling back a different kind of energy one that possesses knowledges of care that extend prior to dominant patriarchal modalities.
1: Yeah, I think that that's why Janelle and I really decided to do a women-led land trust uh, because we looked at what it ha- what's happened um, since men have been in charge of land and the extraction of land, the buying and selling, because what has happened to our lands has also happened to women's bodies. And so there's a real correlation that when settler colonialism happened, when they when people came to indigenous lands, they first destroyed the sacred and then they stole and raped the women um, and took the land um, as they're taking. And so it's uh, it's a deep wound that has also affected men. Um, And so we need to bring this back into balance. And we are told in ceremony through our medicine people, not just California medicine people, but medicine people from all over the world, now is the time for women to stand in their rightful place. And I think we, uh, we need to figure out th- what that means. And so when we start talking about the rematriation of land, it's really about what is our, re- our responsibility and our relationship to land as women. As indigenous women, we are given particular songs for medicine for the waters and so those songs and those medicines have not been woken up in a long time and in order for us to make a change and um, creation, in this creation this further creation that we need to stand in those places of taking care of it's our responsibility as women right we give we give life and so in our in our thoughts it's like okay we bring life into this world but it's also women and two spirits uh folks that responsibility for helping people to leave this world you know what i mean it's the ceremonies that go with your next journey to the next world it's our responsibilities of knowing how to care for um for our elders and um to take care of medicines to uh, sing to the waters because we uh, we also hold water all of human beings all of creation holds water in their body. women hold water in their body in a different kind of way when they're able to give birth or when they're pregnant they hold their children in their own water and so um, to have these water songs uh, is important to remember that um, this so our creation it's really about remembering what what our our original teachings was, and to remind our our male counterparts what is their responsibility as well um uh, to come into uh, a balance so it's not about leaving men behind it's about remembering what our responsibilities are what are all of our original teachings are whether you're male or female or neither that we all had um our own original teachings of how we were supposed to be in this world—we have to go backwards in order to go forward, and that's what I—I I really want to. When we talk about the land, when we talk about our ceremonies, when we talk about living in reciprocity, it's really about going back so that we can go forward in a good kind of in a good way. Uh, to remember how our, our, what we were originally taught. And everyone has original teachings. Sometimes we forgot um, because of moving around the world, because we're far from our own homelands, because we can't go back home, because there's many people that can't go back home but it's then our responsibility to learn what is your responsibility then on someone else's homeland and how do we look to women's leadership? Currently, I'm finding that there are more women that are doing land trust, more indigenous women that are doing land trust for those same reasons as we're bringing up our children and our grandchildren, as we're nurturing the songs and the ceremonies to come back, as we're bringing back the the, uh, medicines of our our traditional territories and learning how to use them again. It's the women that are doing that and are bringing our brothers and our uncles and our fathers and grandpas along with us to remember those songs that go with them, to remember how we're supposed to be on this land together. Um, And so it's important for all of us to know it's just right now that the women have a different way of being on the land and that we have to look towards that way of being on the land in a softer way. Um, in a way that we have a reciprocity to the lands, to, our, to we remember our not just our original teachings, but our responsibilities. You know that's why we work with uh, Chief Calling Sisko of the Winamut Wintu uh, about bringing the salmon back home. Her salmon that were, are um, in New Zealand or out Aurora. How do we bring them back? Because we have a responsibility as salmon people as well. To sing to those salmon as they come home, to sing to them as they go out to the ocean, they could the waters uh, flow from Mount Shasta to the Sacramento and down to our delta uh, out to the bay. You know, it's the same waters that are uh, that we share, and so singing those salmon home and singing them back out to the ocean, it's a responsibility because they feed us, they feed the lands, they uh, they take care of us, and so. Uh, Remember what those responsibilities are. Um, And it's difficult when you're in an office all day long to remember that, oh, I have a responsibility to go sing to those salmon. I have a responsibility not to flush my medication um, down the toilet. I have a responsibility to say thank you to the water because it, I need it in order to live. Um, and so it's really simple things that we have to uh, remind ourselves to teach uh, not just ourselves again, but to teach everybody else.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. And in preparing for our conversation, I came across the history of shell mounds, which are sacred funerary mounds that were across Ohlone territory prior to mass development. And within this story, you've also spoken about how in 1909, Nels Nelson, an archaeologist, mapped the remaining shell mounds, leaving a record of where these ancestors were buried, which really led me to think about the importance of our actions today Now, Nels Nelson didn't stop development, and he was certainly a part of the very society responsible for destroying these burial sites, but small acts can help future generations subvert cultural amnesia and serve as a conduit for remembrance. So I wonder if you'd be willing to share the ongoing importance of preserving and protecting these shell mounds, as well as your wish for how folks can meaningfully contribute to the restoring of the land, even through small acts.
1: That's a great question. You know, Nels Nelson, Nelson I, I believe that my ancestors put particular people, gave them particular jobs, and they did them. Way before I was born, even before my mom was born, that Nels Nelson created this map. And why would he do that? Who cares if a bunch of shell mounds were being destroyed, a bunch of uh, uh, you know, Indian burial sites were being destroyed. But for some reason, he knew that they were really important. And there was mass development happening in 1909 at, around the Bay Area. And he knew that these were funerary places, um, and he thought they were important enough to map them. And so he found on his original map 425 of them that rang the Bay Area. And it gives us a footprint of where our ancestors were. He didn't have to. The development was going to happen. It did happen anyway. But he put this map together, and it allowed us to have, after I talked about the genocide that happened, Three consecutive times in our territory, it gave us a map to really uh, remember the ancestors so that they could remember us. And I really truly believe that's what happened when we did the shell mount walks between 2005 and 2008, that we walked these shell mounds for four years praying at the places that they, um, that they had been. And we know from experience that these shell mounds, even though they're covered by railroad tracks and bars and apartment buildings and schools and parking lots, that underneath them still remains our sacred places and still remain many of our ancestors buried. And so it's our responsibility to go to those places and to pray at them and to acknowledge that our ancestors were there, just like we had done for thousands and thousands of years. The one shell mound, you know, we in 1999, we tried to stop the development of the Bay Street Mall. And the Bay Street Mall is built on top of one of the largest of the 425 shell mounds that that circled the Bay Area. It was a brownfield before the city of Emeryville decided to put a mall on it. And we asked them if they would just clean up the brownfield and allow it to be open space to talk about the history, but also the resiliency of the Ohlone people. And instead, they put a shell mound there and decided to uh, create a, a little representation for of uh, thousands of years. So, of course, we asked people to come out every year on the day after Thanksgiving and participate in a ceremony and a sign waving and information giving that we've done for now 20 years. But we also are protecting and preserving the West Berkeley Shell Mound, the oldest shell mound in the Bay Area. It's on 4th and University, and it lies underneath a parking lot. And for the last four years, we have done interfaith ceremonies there, prayer there. We have invited people from all over the world that have come and prayed with us and stood with us. And it's really the allies and accomplices that have showed up at meetings and have sent in letters of support and have um, have really done beautiful artwork on the land uh, and have really supported the work of of the Ohlone people um, in preserving this sacred site from being developed upon. And now I know people's eyes might see a parking lot, but for us, this is part of our cosmology. It's a place where our ancestors first lived along the bay, right along strawberry creek there were more than one shell mound that had been there it was a place of ceremony it was where we had song um, and uh where we sent our ancestors to what is now called alcatraz and had ceremony on these lands before they took off through what we call the western gate where our ancestors go to the next journey where is now the golden gate bridge Um, and so this particular sacred site that we've been fighting to preserve and protect we won a lawsuit that we joined in with the city of Berkeley against the developers um, in December. Uh, But of course the developers are taking it back to court. And so we're continuing to fight that. Um, And so, you know, during COVID, we have not been able to uh, meet there as much, but we did have an interfaith prayer service there a few weeks back that we was on Facebook live and, I think folks can still access that if they'd like to. But also shellmound.org talks about the history of the plays, uh, allows people to donate to our legal fund because this is a legal battle. Our sacred sites and ancestral burial places are not covered by federal or state laws um, so that they don't get destroyed. Uh, newer ter- ceremonies, you know, places where my mom and my dad are buried right now, where we would never think about putting, uh, you know, uh, Dunkin' Donuts on or anything, but uh, not so much about our ancient burial sites. And so really encourage people to go there, look. To help us to to continue to fight uh, to save this place, we have a concept there. What we would like to do, if that we ever get a willing seller, uh, we would like to recreate a shell mound there, where we could talk about it. We would like to put an arbor there. We'd like to open up Strawberry Creek where it originally went across that land, so that people can see the water. So many of our waterways are underneath the cement and streets, and nobody sees the beauty of that water, um, and we forget. And so, uh, you know, that's what I would encourage people to do about the shell mound.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, at this time, we feel how so many are trying to break away from this culture that has forced our hand into domination, propelling us to the end through exploitation of people and land. And as we come to a close, I'd like to ask how you see us moving into this space where the desire for ending our ongoing consumption and exploitation exists in tandem with profound affirmations of indigenous sovereignty and liberation for all. What is your vision for land restoration and what are the tools that you see are necessary to resist anything that disrupts the healing sanctity and rhythm of life?
1: Hmm. I think we just need to stop (laughs) as human beings, you know, I, you know, I always go back when I talk to, you know, my kids, I talk to other people. I was like, you know, you can go into a store and you can see, I don't know, hundreds of uh, little plastic, say, say they're little plastic chairs for kids, right? You can see hundreds of them stacked up and you can go and then imagine that multiplied throughout the country. And like 50 stores in every city has the same thing. Why do we need all of that? Why, why is there this need of this? I think we need to think about living together in smaller places, um really talking about going back to almost like a village like living where everything that you need is within walking or biking distance. you have mm-hmm. your schools, you have food available, that you have doctors that are living there that we live in a in a smaller we have to we have to go back into making a smaller footprint that we have everything available here we Need to get away from this idea of consumption and capitalism and go back to a way where we're sharing with each other. This idea of, you know, I think people are beginning to come up with this idea, even within the cities, if they have uh, trees that have plums on them and somebody else has lemons on them, that maybe we can exchange stuff that we need, that there's enough food um, that we don't have to think that we need everything out there. We really need to stop producing stuff that's not necessary. We really need to produce only the things that we need in order to survive. We need to produce music and art. We need to have joy and ceremony. We need to have, we need to stop thinking that, you know, one of the things that COVID um, has really taught me as well is that all of these meetings that we thought were necessary are not as necessary (laughs) as we thought they were. Mm -hmm. You know, all all of the time that we spent running to this place and that place was not necessary. It's taught us that we need to spend more time with our families because we yearn to spend time with our families that we've not been able to touch and hold. It reminds us of, of what is really possible in this world again, is that we don't need to work for somebody. We, ne- we need to work for the collective better of all of us, that we need to clean up our waterways and that we, we need to ask for permission. And we, ask, we need to ask for forgiveness. We need to say we're sorry that we've destroyed all of that was given to us to take care of and that we can make it better. We know that we have the technology right now to actually reverse some of these things, to open up the creeks, to clean them up we have enough hands to actually put in the the plant life that's going to actually clear the waters again we have a we ha, we don't need oil we need to leave it in the ground we need to figure out a different way of being on this earth with less things and i think that that's it was we don't need the things we need each other we need to be back in re, um, in right relationships with each other and for everything else that lives on the earth i think that one of the great things that are relatives in outer aurora new zealand is doing is that they're creating and it's crazy that we have to think in this kind of a way but it's in order for human beings i guess to wrap their minds around it again but to make water and mountains have personhood Mm -hmm. to give land a personhood so that we can begin to think that they have the same rights as us right water is alive and we need it in order to survive So give it the right to do what it's supposed to do. Um, And so this is necessary that corporations in this country have personhood. That is beyond why would we do something like that? When we need to give the land and the water and the mountains and the trees and the fish their own rights to sovereignty so that we can come back in right relationship. I think that that's what we need to do. In order for us to survive, in order for our grandchildren to survive, um, we need to come back. And if that's the way we need to do it, um, then I think that that, then we should use that tool to do it.
0: Wow, Karina, that was just, Mm. (laughs) I don't have words. Thank you so much for all that you have said in this last response and the entire conversation Thank you so much for your time, and I want to encourage any of our listeners who live in Ohlone territory to look into paying the Sha'umi tax, and Karina, I'd like to ask you if there is anything else that you'd like to share or request from our listeners in this moment.
1: Yeah, I thank you, Ayana, for this wonderful conversation today. I ask people, wherever they're listening from, to work with the Indigenous peoples on whose land they are, to realize that. Where they're living has thousands of years of history, of language, of song, of ceremony, to find out how they could help uh, to give back land to indigenous people, to work towards uh, a, a working relation of reciprocity while we're on, this, on their territories, to figure out how best to, uh, for all of us in order to survive is to go back and to remember how to live uh, in a better way. Uh, grow food, grow medicine, share food, um, and not think of uh, food as a commodity, but as something that every living person and being should have access to. And I think that you know, as we go forward together in this world, that we walk on her a little gent- a little more gently. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Iana, so much.
0: Thank you for listening to another episode of For the Wild Podcast. The music you heard today was by Shayna Gladstone and Amo Amo. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Erica Ekram, Francesca Glaswell, and Melanie Younger.